assignment right now, tracking down the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot, respectively. But uh, today's episode, we're going to revisit something that Lee, Elena, and I have come back to a few times in our studies, MK Ultra. Now, as regular listeners will, I'm sure, be aware, MK Ultra was a program run by the CIA from 1953 to 1973. It grew out of projects Bluebird and Artichoke, and all three of those programs had similar goals in mind. And when I say goals in mind, I mean the goal was literally to get into the human mind. It must have been super frustrating during the Cold War when information was one of the most important resources, that so much information was locked away in inaccessible places. Uh, You could send spies in to photograph documents, or send spy planes over rocket sites or intercept communications, But one of the trickiest and most inaccessible places where information was held most securely was in the minds of human beings. Safes made of flesh and electricity rather than metal and tumblers. And the CIA wanted to crack those safes. And by the early 1950s, the CIA thought that they had found the combination to those safes. Through a mixture of drugs such as lysergic acid diethylamide and other weird and unethical methods like hypnosis, chemical comas, and shock therapy, the CIA thought it would be possible to create methods that you could use to extract information from unwilling subjects. We already uh, discussed this in some depth in our episodes, uh, CIA Mind Control, Introduction to MKUltra, and MKUltra was Frank Olson murdered, and did the FBI and CIA accidentally cause the 1960s? However, we're not going over the same ground in today's episode. Because the thing is, MKUltra was a massive project in scope and expense, and it was broken down into sub-projects. I was going through a list of all of those sub-projects the other day. Uh, it's absolutely wild reading. Uh, subject 73, for example, was to see if a temporary knockout drug could be created. 58 was to finance a study into hallucinogenic mushrooms. Sub-project 30 was to increase the amount of petty cash at Fort Detrick. Uh, not every sub-project was that compelling or interesting. Many of the sub-projects, including 29 and 42, were about the use of hypnosis. Sub-projects 4, 15, 19, and 34 were all studies of how to use magicians in covert activities. Uh, We'll definitely revisit those at some point. Lee gets very irritated by magicians, so that should be entertaining for me and Elena. Uh, Sub-project 86 concerned the building of a lie detector machine. But it was sub-projects 94 and 142 that really caught my eye this time because both were looking into the idea that you could turn animals into remote control spies or assassins. As soon as I came across that, all the other sub-projects had to get placed on the back burner. Uh, To be honest, that was one of those moments that, as jaded as we are to bizarre plots and schemes, and as used as we are to stumbling across ridiculous intelligence projects, I was genuinely a bit stunned, and I paced around the bunker shaking my head for a few minutes. What did this mean exactly? How could non-human animals be used in this way? Well, to understand that, we need to go back and look at a bit of the history of humans using animals for their own purposes. And at this point, I should mention that there will be some discussion of animals being hurt in this episode. Obviously, I won't be going into gory detail or reveling in cruelty, 
But if you are the kind of person that happily watches a disaster movie in which thousands of humans are being killed, but then yell out, oh no, that dog's in trouble, then this might not be the episode for you. Now, I am actually the sort of person who yells that out in a disaster movie. So why am I covering the subject? For the same reason we cover other human aspects of MKUltra. So many of our podcasts concern how ordinary people who are just trying to go about their lives get caught up in horrible, inhuman systems. And it's important to remember those people and what they went through. Forgetting is a kind of violence all its own. Well, the same is true of animals, who tend to know even less about geopolitical intrigue and machinations than people do, and yet still have often found themselves caught up in ridiculous ways in the absurd human world. Of course, dogs and horses have been used in human warfare for thousands of years. Even as recently as World War II, there was a tremendous reliance on horses for transportation. But we aren't discussing the conventional uses and abuses of animals for human purposes. We're talking about the wildly unconventional. One way that we can often pick out the wildly unconventional is that such plans often come complete with a ridiculous codename. And with that in mind, let's start with Project X-Ray. In 1941, during World War II, the American government put together an organization called the Office of Scientific Research and Development, or OSRD. It was led by a scientist by the name of Dr. Vannevar Bush, whom I don't think we've mentioned before, but I'm sure will come up again in future episodes, uh, probably when we do an expose of Majestic 12. Anyway, the OSRD was in charge of several weighty and important projects, including the Manhattan Project, which was building the first nuclear bomb. And at the same time, they were in charge of building the first bat bomb, which is to say, a bomb that would contain thousands of exploding bats. And this was Project X-Ray. The project was conceived by Dr. Little Adams, who was Lytle? I'm not sure how to say his name, to be honest. It can't possibly be, like you wouldn't name your kid Little. So it's got to be Lytle. Dr. Lytle Adams, who was a dental surgeon, but also an inventor. Now, if you're curious as to how good an inventor he was, I should point out that he did hold a patent for some kind of a mail delivery system, and more importantly, that he had been working on an idea for a fried chicken vending machine. Now, Dr. Adams had been uh, visiting Carlsbad Caverns when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941, and immediately set about designing a weapon that he thought would win the war for the Americans. About a month later, he wrote a letter to President Roosevelt explaining his new invention, and I'll read part of the letter. The lowest form of animal life is the bat, associated in history with the underworld and regions of darkness and evil. Until now, reasons for its creation have remained unexplained. Now, this so far reads as if he's planning to go to war against bats rather than Japan. But he goes on. This lowly creature is capable of carrying in flight a sufficient quantity of incendiary material to ignite a fire. Again... It sounds more like he's trying to warn the American government about the dangers of vicious bat arsonists than proposing a war-winning weapon. But he goes on to explain how the American government could strap tiny bombs to bats, release them over the cities of Japan, and inflict a terrible toll on both Japanese people and, presumably, the American bat population at the same time. He concluded by saying, If the use of bats in this allied war can rid us of the Japanese pests, we will erect a monument to their everlasting memory. Now... I disagree with this guy on pretty much all of his points. Calling an entire nation of people pests is nothing short of genocidal madness, of course, and regular listeners will no doubt already have noticed that we have a strong anti-genocide bias here at the Uncover-Up. But I also disagree with him about bats. Personally, I love bats, 
and I get excited enough to see one flying around in the evening that I literally can't stop myself from pointing them out and yelling, look a bat, in an undignified manner. I guess it's pointless in a way to even discuss the ethics of a plan like this. I mean, it, it's designed to murder thousands of innocent people in a fiery inferno. But ethics aside, did this plan work? The first thing the Office of Strategic Research and Development had to do was figure out what kind of bat would be best suited to the project. America's largest bat is the Mastiff, but it's pretty rare, and it would be hard to gather enough of them to make a proper bat bomb. The most common bat is the mule-eared bat, but it's a little delicate and dainty for this sort of work. The bat they eventually landed on was the Mexican free-tailed bat, which could carry 18 grams of cargo in flight and was extremely common and easy to find. Next, the OSRD had to design a tiny little backpack full of explosives. A Harvard chemist named Louis Pfizer had just invented a new horror, a kind of jellied gasoline that would stick to things as it burned, which of course we know as napalm. And Pfizer was able to make a little napalm case with straps that could be fastened to a bat, and that case weighed in at about 17.5 grams, or 0.5 grams under the Mexican free-tailed bat's luggage limit. Now that they had their bat chosen and their bat backpack, or bat pack, developed, the OSRD needed to test out the weapon. This was done out in the Mojave Desert over a test village filled with test buildings specifically built for this experiment. 3,500 bats were cooled into hibernation, geared up, and placed in a container that would then be dropped out of the bomb bay of a B-25 bomber. Uh, the idea was the container would then open up, the bats would warm up midair, and then fly off with their little packages of napalm. Each bat would then find itself a little house or something to hide in, and then after a few minutes, the fuses in their bat packs would go off and set fire to the building they had hidden in. 3,500 bats would fly to thousands of houses and other buildings, and the fires that broke out would be so widespread that they would overwhelm any kind of firefighting response. This first test was less than successful. The B-25 dropped the frozen bats from a height of 5,000 feet. The idea was that they would warm up and come out of hibernation, but the scientists weren't entirely sure how long it would take for the bats to wake up. I'm not sure how long that would take either, but I bet it would take longer than 17.5 seconds. The reason I mention that specific number is that 17.5 seconds is how long a frozen bat would take to fall 5,000 feet. So after the first test, the OSRD had accomplished nothing but littering the Mojave Desert with 3,500 frozen bat corpses. Learning from their mistakes, sadly not the mistake they should have learned from, which is that it's mean and stupid to try to turn bats into little firebombs, the OSRD didn't cool the bats as much for the second test, so that they had a better chance to wake up before crashing into the desert floor like so many furry hailstones. However, this time it was a warmer day than predicted, and the bats woke up in the small window of time before they could be loaded onto the plane, but after they had been fitted with their time bomb bat packs. Which meant that dozens of little exploding bats took to the sky, and then took refuge in the buildings of nearby Carlsbad Air Base, which then burned to the ground in a blazing testament to the power of either bat revenge or karma, depending on your spiritual beliefs. The program was cancelled after that, which was 100% for the best. But this was not the only covert animal plan that came out of World War II. While the OSRD was working on Project X-Ray, the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, was working on the even more elaborately named Project Fantasia. And while X-Ray was designed to bring fire to the people of Japan, Fantasia was designed to bring fear and dread, because the OSS, of course, was the precursor to the CIA, and one of their specialties at the time was psychological warfare. If you want to carry out a successful PSYOP campaign, 
you have to know a lot about the psychology of the people you were campaigning against. Ignorance and 1940s-style racism prevented the OSS from developing a truly deep understanding of Japanese culture, but there were some attempts made by OSS officers to try to figure out how the traditional Shinto beliefs of the Japanese people could be used against them. Proving that a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing, the OSS had received reports that Japanese shrines often featured statues of foxes, and Japanese folk stories often involved trickster foxes. Therefore, what better way to attack the psyche of the Japanese population than by convincing them that the country was being overrun by evil, evil fox, fox spirits? Fox spirits. After considering and then abandoning the idea of using giant inflatable fox balloons to roll over the Japanese islands like a surreal Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade, the OSS decided that there was no substitute for the real thing, and they immediately set about trying to figure out a way to make foxes glow in the dark. Luminescent paint seemed like the most obvious solution, and so they painted a bunch of foxes and dropped them in Chesapeake Bay so that they would swim on shore in a reasonable simulation of what it would be like to send an amphibious fox invasion against a Japanese island. However, the paint mostly washed off, and what little paint was still left when the foxes came ashore was quickly cleaned off by the foxes, who are apparently fairly fastidious animals. In a second test, the OSS painted 30 foxes and let them loose at night in Central Park, New York City. Now, according to one contemporary newspaper report, this test was actually more or less a success. And I quote, Horrified citizens, shocked by sudden sight of the leaping ghost-like animals, fled from the dark recesses of the park with the screaming jimmies. Proving that there are no newspaper writers like old-timey newspaper writers. Before the glowing foxes of the OSS could be launched into action, the radioactive fruits of the Manhattan Project turned Hiroshima and Nagasaki into ash and shadows, ending the war and scrapping any need for Project Fantasia. It's unlikely to have worked anyway. Imagine somebody trying a, a similar psyop against North Americans. They might learn that traditionally black cats are seen as an omen of bad luck. They could parachute hundreds of black cats into an American city, and then sit back and wait for the population to lose their minds, forcing the collapse of the American military and the surrender by the American leadership. And of course, that wouldn't work either. But it probably would have been about as effective as Project Fantasia would have been. Now, the end of World War II didn't mean the end of bizarre covert animal plans, of course. The Cold War was the golden age of ridiculous plans, and that brings us back to MKUltra, Subproject 94, and a little project called Acoustic Kitty. In the 1960s, the CIA operated a department called the Technical Services Division, later to be renamed the Office of Technical Services. They were tasked with trying to win the technological arms race between the Soviet and American covert agencies, uh, if you think of them as Q-Branch from the James Bond films, then you're pretty much in the right area. Way back in the 1960s, human beings still talked to each other in person occasionally, and the CIA was looking for ways that they can seal bugs in a, in a manner that they could get the little microphones closer to the lips of Soviet agents. And someone, uh, whose name has been redacted in the few memos I've been able to dig up on the subject, had the idea of placing a microphone in a place that the Soviets would never suspect. A cat's head. Now, a cat's head has many advantages. The cat's ear is an excellent receiver for sound waves, and it's a large enough hole to, to put a small microphone inside of it. But the greatest advantage of the cat's head is that it's attached to a cat's body, which is mobile, agile, and totally unsuspicious. I mean, I must admit that I've interacted with several cats in my lifetime, and I have rarely considered if any of them were secretly recording my conversations. So the plan was this. Place a microphone in the cat's ear... 
put the transmitter in the loose skin behind the cat's neck, and then run the antenna along the cat's back, although there's some debate amongst historians as to whether the antenna also ran along the length of the cat's tail, because being a historian is weirder than you think. The cat would then be sent into eavesdrop on the conversations of target individuals. At this point, if you have spent any time with a cat, you can likely see a serious flaw in this plan. How can you get a cat to do something? How can you get a cat to do anything? Uh, this is where MK Ultra Subproject 94 comes in. Most of the historical accounts I've come across concerning what happened to this cat uh, only mention uh, training, which I assume was which I assume was done using uh, typical behaviorist methods of rewards and punishments and positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment. However, MKUltra Subproject 94 concerned the use of technologies to control animal behavior. Uh, one commonly used example is the elimination of Acoustic Kitty's food drive so that the cat wouldn't just wander off looking for treats just as the Soviet ambassador was about to discuss the placement of medium-range missiles in Cuba. However, based on the memos that I've been looking over, I think there's the possibility that the behavior modification went further than this into the area of remote control direction. According to a heavily redacted 1967 CIA memo titled Views on Trained Cats, the author writes, Our final examination of trained cats for use in the convinced us that the program would not lend itself in a practical sense to our highly specialized needs. Repeated checks on the state of training and equipment showed us that it was indeed possible to train locations. We were not able to visualize use this technique over conditions that prevail. We have satisfied ourselves that it is indeed possible. This is in itself a remarkable scientific achievement. Knowing that cats can indeed be trained to move short distances, we see no reason to believe that a cat cannot be similarly trained to approach. Again, however, the environmental and security factors in using this technique in a real foreign situation force us to conclude that, for our purposes, it would not be practical. The work done on this problem over the years reflects great credit on the personnel who guided it, particularly whose energy and imagination could be models of scientific pioneers. I think that memo gives you some sort of idea of one of the greatest frustrations that we have when we're researching anything, which is redaction. Like, I would love to know what some of those beeps cover. One beep in particular, the sentence, knowing that cats can indeed be trained to move short distances. <laughs> now, what was the word there that they thought they needed to take out? I would make the argument that perhaps that word was remotely. Uh, because this memo only mentions training the cats, at least in the unredacted portion I was able to get access to. However, it not only refers to training, but also equipment. And something tells me that by equipment, they didn't just mean cat treats. But the memo that suggests to me even more strongly that some other kind of remote control direction was implanted in the cat brain comes from another MKUltra subproject, subproject 142. In an earlier CIA memo on subproject 142, the author writes, The purpose of this subproject is to provide funds to support a small biological program of electrical brain stimulation involving some new approaches to the subject by... The reason for separating this work financially from the other efforts of... 
in the agencies we have is to allow him to engage in some very practical experiments at some point in the work which would present security problems if this effort was to be handled in the usual way. Some of the uses proposed for these particular animals would involve possible delivery systems for BW-CW agents or for direct executive action type operations as distinguished from the eavesdropping application of... A couple things here. One, the reference to the, quote, eavesdropping application of... End quote, is likely a reference to the Acoustic Kitty program, which suggests a tie to that program to the remote control project referenced here. Also, there's that sentence about using remote control animals as delivery systems for BW slash CW agents. BW refers to biological weapons, and CW refers to chemical weapons. In short, part of MKUltra was related to making remote control animal assassins that would use biological weapons to murder human targets. Uh, were they successful? Like so many of the MKUltra projects, it's, it's difficult to say how far they went because so many of the MKUltra files were destroyed. Historians disagree about what happened to Acoustic Kitty. Some argue that the project ended and the cat was decommissioned and lived out a happy, normal cat life. Others, including Victor Marchetti, disagree. Marchetti was the special assistant to CIA director Richard Helms in the mid to late 1960s, so he would have had access to top-level projects. According to Marchetti, Acoustic Kitty made it all the way to field trials and was sent along with her handlers to a park in Washington, D.C., and then sent after two targets talking on a park bench. Apparently, the targeting system, whatever it was, worked, and the cat headed straight towards the two men. However, only a few yards away from the bench, millions of dollars of technology, hundreds of hours of research, and weeks of planning and training all came to an ignoble end when the cat was run over by a taxi. Personally, I hope that that story isn't true, and that Acoustic Kitty was able to live out a normal cat life far away from the absurd world of Cold War politics. A couple more points in this area. If you're interested in these stories, I highly recommend the book Nuking the Moon by Dr. Vince Houghton. Uh, he's a historian at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. The other thing I wanted to mention is that while I was researching this episode, I came across something extremely odd in the CIA files that I wasn't sure what to make of. I came across a surprising amount of references to, or reports about, or requests for information on, the subject of electric eels. Why was the CIA so interested in electric eels? My co-workers, who I asked this question of, uh, responded that almost certainly that these eels were going to use, be used in some kind of weaponized manner. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a lot easier ways to generate electricity than through an eel. I think there's something else going on with these. I think there's something stranger. Whatever the answer is to why the CIA was fascinated with the electric eel, it's going to be weird. And I don't think, knowing myself, that I am going to be able to rest until I figure this out. So look forward to that in a future podcast episode. But for now, I just want to say thanks for listening. Uh, remember to follow us on Instagram at The Uncover Up. Uh, that's the space uncover space up. I have promised that if we get to 250 followers by the end of May 2020, I will get a permanent tattoo of a flying saucer on my arm. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Uh, in the meantime, since this episode was recorded in the winter of 2020, I would just like to say to you guys, uh, keep washing your hands for 20 seconds. And if you're in self-quarantine as you listen to this episode right now, I hope you feel better soon. Uh, particularly, I know that it's, it's been bad in Washington State, 
uh, with COVID-19. And so I just wanted to wish a special shout out to our listeners in Seattle or Bonnie Lake. Stay safe, everybody.